We're going to do the second half of the video about how do you hear from God? How do we hear from God? And this video is very important. We have the handouts have the part that we're going to cover. So we'll show the half hour, starting where we left off last time. The first verse will cover John 1.14. And we're going to make the claim that under the new covenant, Jesus Christ is the greater Moses that was promised before. And that's the claim the New Testament writers wrote. And that if you want to listen to God, you have to listen to Jesus Christ who came in the flesh and spoke to his apostles. And that's where the scripture came from. So... Take what, what I want you to do, take the handouts, that'll be the PowerPoint up here, and write your comments and questions down to, with the corresponding slide that I'm preaching from. And when we have our time of discussion, I'll pull up that PowerPoint and we'll go to whatever point you want to discuss. This is crucial. Absolutely. Yesterday, I was at Sam's Club to pick up a couple things. Stop by the book table where they sell Bibles. False prophets are publishing books claiming that God spoke new words beyond Scripture. This Sarah Young, who channels a spirit by the name of Jesus, has a new book out that looks like a Bible. And I just opened it up. Right in the middle. Just open it up. No, I didn't choose. I just opened it up. 365 days of listening to a spirit who calls itself Jesus. And this spirit says that what Jesus wants is people to sense his presence. Okay? Now, that's the opposite of what the Bible said about Jesus Christ coming to flesh. That he ascended bodily into heaven and he bodily sits at the right hand of God and that he ever lives to make intercession for us and that he hears us this awareness of presence is the same term used by Eckhart Tolle the pagan mystic uh, Matthew Fox all these other uh, new age teachers so dear saints we better listen to what the Bible says. Because the one Jesus, who's the true Messiah, came in the flesh, and he has spoken. That's our topic. Eric, could you please open us in prayer? Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can meet together, that we have freedom in this nation, and that we can read your word and we thank you. You've given us everything we need to know. We ask that you forgive us for the times that we don't understand, that we're not uh, faithful as we should be. We just ask that you bless our teachers and each of us here spiritually, that we would know what you have for us in your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So when God speaks, he speaks through his ordained spokespersons, and the words that God speaks through his ordained spokespersons are words that are inerrant, authoritative, binding. All other words are uncertain and don't have the quality of those sort of words that we have in the Scripture. Now it says in John 1.14, we're going to go now into the New Testament. So we've seen very clearly that God spoke definitively through the mediator of the Old Covenant, that being Moses, and that the tent of meeting was where God spoke to Moses, not anybody and everybody else. Now, there's an interesting uh, passage in John 1 and verse 14, and it says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is an allusion to the Old Covenant. This is an allusion to Moses, because the word dwelt in the Greek means pitched his tent or tabernacle. And grace and truth are an allusion 
to what Moses heard when he was up on Sinai, when God passed him by, said that God was full of loving kindness and truth. Hesed and Ameth. And biblical scholars say that the, this term, Hesed, loving kindness, is uh, the theological equivalent of the term grace in the New Testament in, in a lot of ways. They're not identical, but very much the same. So when, when, when uh, John told us that the eternal Logos, who existed as God and with God from all eternity, came into history, that God had pitched his tent among us, and the glory was remem- reminiscent of Sinai, and the grace and truth is reminiscent of Sinai. So we know this is the new, greater Moses. The prophet that God said that he would raise up. And so he tabernacled. See, the tent of meeting was Jesus. Yes, Jesus in the flesh. When, when it came time to institute the new covenant, God didn't just send somebody and said, okay, I'm going to teach you techniques of divination so you can hear from God. He didn't do, do it that way. He didn't say, try to, try to think about what I'm saying. No, he sent Jesus in the flesh who spoke audible words to people that he chose who were given the new covenant, and they wrote it for us. Okay, they wrote it for us. So we have the very authoritative and binding words of the mediator of the new covenant, a better covenant, Jesus Christ, who tabernacled, and he's the prophet Moses predicted. Notice in John 2, 19-21, Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews therefore said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking of the temple of his body. You know, when I preach the gospel every Sunday, uh, I vary the words, but I don't vary the basic outline. Who is Jesus? What did he do? Why, did he, why, did, why do we need him? What does he expect of us? Those four points get preached every Sunday. Tomorrow, I'm going to have a special sermon called Seven Benefits of Preaching the Gospel to the Church. So uh, as part of this, frankly, because I had four lectures today, I didn't have time for an expository sermon, so I'm going to indulge myself and have a topical one because it's a lot quicker. But I think it will be very beneficial. Seven benefits of gospel preaching. All right? So you can see this in, in the Gospels themselves. John starts with the pre-incarnate Christ eternally with the Father, face to face. In fact, that in the Greek would indicate that uh, in John 1.1. 1, 1. So as Moses spoke face to face in the tent of meeting, Jesus existed forever face to face with the Father. Pros is the um, Greek word. Or pros. Now, one of the things I often say when I'm preaching the gospel, and I've already told you who Jesus is, <laughs> that's what I'm preaching on right now, and one of the things that he did that proves that he is God incarnate is he predicted his own resurrection from the dead. That's not true of Buddha, not true of Muhammad, not true of Joseph Smith, not true of any other person who ever deemed to be the founder of a religion. Only Jesus. In fact, his critics his critics before the authorities said that he said he was going to do this. So, so, Jesus, so Jesus here is predicting his own resurrection, and he accomplished it. So thereby, we know he is everything he claimed to be, and he claimed to be God incarnate. And he claimed to be the Savior. And his blood was shed over God's wrath against our sin. That's why we need him. We need him. Only Jesus' blood can wash away our sins. And we need to repent and believe the gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. Mark 9, 2 and 3. It, it gets better. Wait until you see this. <laughs> I'm just going to get to the good part here. <laughs> Mark 9, 2 and 3. Let's go to the Mount of Transfiguration. <laughs> and six days later, Jesus took uh, with him Peter and James and John and brought them up to a high mountain by themselves And he was transfigured before them. And his garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as no launderer on earth can whiten them. And Elijah appeared to them along with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. 
And Peter answered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, uh, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, Peter, now the text of the Gospels makes it clear that Peter wasn't thinking right here. It wasn't a good idea. He wanted to have three tents of meeting. See, the ta- a tabernacle is a tent of meeting. The terms used interchangeably in the Old Testament. So he was going to have three places where you could come, because Moses was somebody who spoke for, for God, did he not? Elijah spoke for God, did he not? And so Peter at least realized that Jesus does too. So he was thinking, we'd have three options. We could ask Moses what God had to say, or we could ask Elijah what God had to say, or we could ask Jesus. But why was that a bad idea? Because now that prophet had come that God said through Moses would be like Moses, and he would speak beyond what Moses said, and we'd have to listen to him. He is the mediator of a better covenant, a new covenant. And the book of Hebrews tells us how much better it is. Now listen, it's not done. Look at this. More evidence, 6 through 8. For he did not know what to answer. So in other words, uh, the, Mark was, is telling us Peter probably wasn't thinking too straight. Okay? He didn't know what to answer. For they became terrified. Then a cloud formed. Now where did we read about a cloud? In Exodus, right? And didn't it come over the tent of meeting? So we're back there again thinking about Moses. Their minds have to be going. Moses is there. The cloud reminds us of Moses. The grace and truth reminds us of Moses. The glory reminds us of Moses. And here it says, the cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Now what did Moses say? God would raise up a prophet like me in Deuteronomy 18. When he does, what did Moses say? Listen to him. Do we have any problem knowing who he's talking about? It has to be Jesus. All of the evidence points that this is the one. And even God from heaven said, this is the one I speak through. You must listen to him. Not even Moses and Elijah. They're not going to have a tabernacle here. There's only going to be one. The tabernacle of God is Jesus come in the flesh. Now, let's just nail this one down so that nobody misses it. Here's what it says. John 5, 45 and 47. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. So Jesus himself said that he was the prophet and that Moses wrote about him in Deuteronomy 18. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? See, if you believe Jesus, I mean, if you believe Moses and you took Moses for what he said, then you'd have to listen to Jesus. And you could go nowhere else. Once God chooses a mediator for a covenant, there's nowhere else to go. These guys in the Old Testament, or Miriam and and Korah and all these other people, they wanted to go somewhere else. Boom, they're zapped. There's nowhere else to go. This is definitive. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. Now let's see what it says in Hebrews. In fact, the whole book of Hebrews is a commentary on this. Um, by the way, and if you have never done a careful study of the book of Hebrews since you've become a Christian, I think you owe it to yourself to do so. Do a study of Hebrews, and it will show you what's wrong in the church today, as a matter of fact. Hebrews 1, 1 and 2, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and many ways in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Notice, has spoken. A.T. Robertson, the great Greek scholar, in his um, word pictures in the New Testament, commenting on this verse, says, this means in full and final revelation. He didn't say he started to speak to us and his son, and now we have to see where else this is going to go. Now we're going to see here in Hebrews that even in Hebrews, they understood that the apostles 
were still speaking the words of Jesus, not something of their, of their own that was different, but their words came from Jesus, so Jesus is still the mediator. Verse 3 says this, And he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's the mediator. The mediator now has moved his mediatorial role to heaven. So Jesus is still the mediator of the new covenant. His words are still the binding authoritative words that are inerrant for the church, but now Jesus is in heaven. So there's no place on earth you can come and find a tent of meeting, figurative or literal, that's going to change the fact that the tent moved to heaven. All right, Hebrews 2, 1 and 3. I want to show that the words of the New Testament are also considered a Jesus's, considered authoritative words from Jesus. Here's what it says. Uh, for this reason, for this reason, we must uh, pay much closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation after it was at the first spoken through the Lord, then it was confirmed to us by those who heard. Remember, Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance that which I've spoken to you. He said that to the apostles. And so when we're reading um, the, the New Testament, we're reading words confirmed by people who heard it from Jesus himself or heard it from someone who did hear from Jesus, like Luke, for example. He, he, he investigated and talked to the people who were the eyewitnesses, and he got the words. Okay, verse 4 says this. Um, excuse me. Hebrews 4.14 we're going to. Hebrews 4.14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might receive new revelations. No, no, I read that wrong. That was the wrong version. What do we get at the throne of grace? We receive mercy and grace to help. Okay, now, the Lord loves you. He cares for you. And this throne of grace is there for every born-again Christian where you can draw near to God. And it's not a place on earth, it's in heaven, so you draw near by faith. And you can bring all of your needs, all of your problems, all of your concerns to the Lord, and he will hear you, and he will give you mercy and grace. Okay, and thank God for that. But see, people are not satisfied. They're not satisfied. They say, oh, give me some new words. We're not satisfied. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2. Now the main point, okay, in case you weren't listening, the author of Hebrews is going to tell you the main point. It means it's important. The main point in what has been said is this. We have such a high priest taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now notice a minister in the sanctuary and in what? The true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched not man. Where is the tent of meeting? In heaven. You got it right. It's in heaven. It's not in your kitchen. All right. Now you can be in your kitchen and go to the throne of grace. I'm not disputing that. And I'm not disputing that you, when you read the Bible, you're reading the words of God. But I am disputing that we can go become conduits of new revelation personally ourselves. We're not mediators of the covenant. Jesus is. We're recipients. Now, it's another interesting thing. Now, I, I've been contending about this for some years, written many articles and had plenty of chance for feedback from critics who don't agree with me. And let me just interact with some of that today. 
because uh, maybe this is something you've been thinking. Uh, one, here's one criticism I got. Well, then you're saying prayer is us talking to God, not God talking to us. I said, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Well, then isn't that sterile? Isn't that kind of uh, uh, impersonal? Isn't that impersonal? How can you say you have a personal relationship with God if he's not talking to us? Well, my response is, um, look, this is absolutely personal. The throne of grace is personal. God hears me personally, all right? And it says that we have the Holy Spirit who prays in, within us, for us, in groanings too deep for words. And, and it says that we can, and he's saying, Abba, Father, that's personal, okay? And you can have, uh, you don't have to be getting words. Let's, let's say you were uh, just married, this happened to people in World War II. You were just married, and your husband was sent to World War II, and there were no, and he was sent somewhere where there was no communication able to come back, and and he was isolated in the war for a year. Would you therefore not have a personal husband? Well, no. Your husband would still be your husband, and you'd still have a relationship with him. It's just that for a time, for a time. You're not getting the communication back other than what he'd already said before he left. Now, isn't that the way it is? We're going to get personal communication from God, starting at the marriage supper of the Lamb, or when we go to be with him, okay? And so, uh, yes, we long for him. We say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We want to see you. We believe in him whom we haven't seen, but one of these days, our faith will become sight. So that's my response, that it's just absolutely not true, that you have to be getting new revelations or you don't have anything personal. And then they say, well, all you are is just rational and logical. That's that's all you want, rational and logical. Well, uh, you're not talking about experiences, you're just talking about logic, like some Greek thinker. Well, let me respond to that. The fact is that if we remove reason and logic, words written to us can't be understood. All right? Logic is what was true because we're created in God's image. So when God says to a man or a woman, you shall not steal, it takes a rational mind to contemplate the meaning of the word steal and not, and then to logically connect it to real life. This doesn't belong to me, if I take it, that is stealing, and therefore I'm disobeying God's law. Now, that's rational, that's logical. You take that away and you have no law. You can't say that to a dog. You can say to a dog, don't steal. And the dog goes over to the neighbor's yard and takes the other dog's ball comes back. I told you not to do that. Well, an unreasoning beast can't process ideas. So people that are trying to remove logic, and we'll talk about that in our fourth session today, are trying to remove from us our connection to the words of God and their binding application in our lives. Now, does that mean we don't have any experiences? That's, that's another fallacy. Okay, People say, if I become mystical, or if I go to this meeting where people are being slain under the power and they're laughing and all these things are happening, then I had an experience. But if I come to your church, all I heard was logic. Well, let me respond to that. We're all experiencing our relationship with God, if we have one, day by day, moment by moment. And we're experiencing his love and his providence and his care in ways that we can't even know, beyond what we can know and see. And if somebody says that unless you have some extraordinary thing happening, like a prophet speaking for God, you're not having any experience. It's just flat out not true. It's not true. And it's not that we don't have emotion and all these things, but our experience and our emotions and our life in Christ is controlled by the parameters laid out in the Bible. So we're staying between the boundaries or the lines where it's safe. I don't have to go outside of the boundary to have an experience because uh, Korah had an experience. I'm sure, I'm sure dropping in the shoal was very exciting <laughs> until he hit the bottom. All right, let's go on. Hebrews 9, I hadn't thought of that before today.
It's an experience I'm not going to sign up for. <laughs> All right, Hebrews 9, 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands. It's a better one. This is the, the greatest one yet. It's not made with hands. All right. That is to say, not of this creation, not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. Hallelujah. You know, the once for alls, by the way, in the Bible are very, very important. The faith was delivered to the saints once for all. Okay, right there, that's the end of New Revelations. Okay, and the blood was shed once for all. Okay, so if, if we don't know that, we're going to look for some other mediator and not come to Jesus himself. Hebrews 10, 12 and 13. But he having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected, perfected for all time those who are sanctified. This is positional sanctification. This is something you received when you were converted. If you believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you believe God raised him from the dead, and you have turned from sin and self and you're serving him, then you are sanctified forever. Now, there's still progressive sanctification. I'll talk about this tomorrow, but it's been done. You are holy because you're his, and he is holy, and he's cleansed your sins one, through his one sacrifice. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now, this one's important. Let's make an application of Hebrews 11.1. 1. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. What was wrong with the Hebrew Christians that prompted the author of Hebrews to warn them? There's five warnings against apostasy. Why? Well, because, see, these people were still alive or they were alive when the temple was still in operation, I believe, before 70 A.D. And they were not able to see the, te- the temple of the new covenant. It's in heaven. Can you see that? No. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Can you see him? No. Can you see the blood that was shed once for all? No. But these people could go to Jerusalem on the Day of Atonement, and they could see literal bloodshed of the, of the sacrificial victims. And they could see the high priest all decked out in glorious attire. They could see the pomp and the ceremony in the literal temple. You could see the priest going into the holiest place. And that was tangible. It was more, more of a real experience. But if they're going to serve Jesus, they've got to believe because they can't see. Now, Remember this. This is what happened in their history. And that's why Hebrews goes back to the wilderness wanderings as a warning. In their history, when Moses went up to talk to God about Sinai, they said to Aaron, we don't know what happened to Moses. We don't see him. So why don't we make a golden calf? Here, here's the earrings and all the gold. And we'll have a tangible God. One we can party around and see. And this tangible one we make is not a threat to us. The one up on the mountain's got all this fire and smoke, and if we even go up there, he'll kill us. This, this calf is very safe. He's not, he's not a threat. Okay, so now, dear ones, we have a crisis in the evangelical movement. Our movement has lost its faith. We can no longer be satisfied, apparently, serving a God we cannot see and believing the words that have already been spoken or hearing about the blood that was shed once for all. And so the seminars and how to hear God's voice, how to have a more tangible experience, how to do this and how to do that are uh, all over the place, whereas the hearing of the words of God is becoming archaic. So I give you a choice. You can believe in the high priest who's seated at the right hand of God, and you can draw near to God by the means God ordained, by faith, come to the throne of grace, or you can go down to, there's seminars right here in the city, just recently there was one, 
where they say, we're going to teach you how to hear God's voice guaranteed. Okay? And you can hear voices in your mind and have another experience. But you've got to decide whether these voices in your mind are the God of the Bible. They may not very well not be, and I'd say they are not. 1 Peter 1.8, And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. Now, is he speaking? There's an, I'm, I'm going to show you something. People say, well, you, the way you're talking, you're saying God is mute. That's another criticism I've heard. God's mute. God can't talk. No, God's capable of doing anything. But what we want to know is what he did do and what he did say. And he is speaking. Here it is, right here. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. But who is it? It's the one speaking through the words of the New Testament prophets and apostles. He's speaking to us from heaven. And and he's warning us. He's warning us, don't go into this divination. Don't go after other gods. Don't listen to prophets that have been proven false. Don't listen to the ones who are defining for you a God you haven't known, but listen to the one who is speaking from heaven. He is warning us, don't go there. And if those who did not escape when they refused him were warned on earth, how much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven? Therefore, verse 28 and 29, Hebrews 12, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. We might think, well, okay, Korah, Adab, these guys in the Old Testament uh, uh, who were consumed, that God was, was only like that in the Old Testament, now the God of the New Testament. In fact, this is an old heresy from the early church, Marcion. But the God of the New Testament is a, a harmless God who's only love, and he doesn't have any threats toward anybody. But it's not true. The God who was a consuming fire in Moses' day is God who's a consuming fire in our day. And though his judgment is delayed because of his mercy to give time for repentance, he's still the same God. And he's warning us so we don't end up in that consuming fire. Deuteronomy 13, one more time. One more time back there. Don't go after other gods and serve them. Don't listen to the prophet, the dreamer. You're being tested. Today, in the evangelical movement that we've known that began in the early 20th century, cross-denominational lines. I haven't heard of a denomination that hasn't been affected. I haven't heard of a single one that's been unscathed by this movement toward mysticism, new revelations, new prophets, new signs and wonders, new everything. Okay? We are being tested. The false prophets have a role. The role is to lead the apostates out of the true church so they can all go gather together somewhere. Okay? But we got to decide who do we want to gather with. The remnant who loves God and his word or the people who are going after other gods we have not known. Hebrews 7.25, our last slide. Hence, also, he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, you have a sacred and holy privilege and responsibility to draw near to God through Jesus Christ. The means are ordained in the scripture. It's by faith, not by sight. It's not through some technique that somebody dreamed up. It's through the words that God has spoken to us in these last days through his Son. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the clear teaching of the Bible. And this truly breaks our heart that some have just not understood this or maybe not been satisfied with it. But Lord, may we come to you through the mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, and draw near to you by the terms you've laid out in the Bible. 
and do so until you come to bring us to yourself. And we say, even so, come quick, quickly, Lord Jesus. In your holy name, amen. Now, um, what I would like is for anybody who wants to discuss anything we did here, ask questions, make comments, you have the outline, and we'll see what you think about this claim that God has spoken once for all to us through his son, Jesus Christ, that he's in heaven, that he hears us, that he cares about us, that he went to prepare a place for us, that he would come again, John 14, right? Receive us to himself, that where he is, there we may be. And I think the clear issue that I was addressing 10 years ago now was so many are not satisfied with this. They say it's deficient, it's sterile, it's boring, it's lifeless, it's meaningless. We need an experience. To get this up to current history, we have a man, Hank Hanegraaff, who was the Bible answer man, who's rejected evangelicalism because it wasn't real. He wanted something more spiritually tangible. And he went over to Eastern Orthodox. It's even more mystical than Rome. That's the issue. That's why Beth Moore, Sarah Young, and all the others... Matthew Fox, um, Brian McLaren. That's why this is all out there. And I honestly think it's fair and legitimate to say that what we have is spirituality for the unconverted. Okay. Now, does anybody want to bring up anything, if nothing else, we could discuss the Jewish marriage customs that are referenced. Yes, we have one here. Yeah, I was just going to talk on the, uh, the prayer. I was thinking when you said, you know, God doesn't answer prayer, I, I'm sure you would agree. He answers prayer, but not, you know, with a literal voice, at least. I've heard of people that have literally heard a voice, but, you know, I expect answers, just not with a voice. Yes, you're right. He does answer prayer. And he uses providence. And how the answer comes is just as powerful and just as supernatural. Mm-hmm. And sometimes even when we're not totally thinking right, God uses that and it works to get us where we need to be. I was just yesterday, why, I don't know, I was contemplating this. Probably because I was, what I do now, I show people what the pattern is. That's what this is all about. What did God say? What did he do? What is the pattern under the new covenant and how we come to God? Who is God? Who is Jesus Christ? What did he do? When I was a new Christian, I was converted through a Pentecostal church and uh, with my wife's family down in Sheldon, Iowa. And one of the things Pentecostals did back in those days, this was 1971, was they had camp meetings. And the reason they would do that, they'd bring in a preacher, and they'd try to get people that went to denominational churches to come and hear the gospel that maybe wouldn't go to their church. So this is part of God's providence. I was off to Bible college, we were back, we are having this camp meeting, and yesterday this all came to me. I was there, they used to have an altar call, you know, the old sawdust trail, all that. So I'm up there praying and praying and crying, oh God, oh God, help me. And I'd opened up my Bible and I was reading it and it was in Ezekiel and the passage there, certainly it was about Ezekiel, not me, but I'm reading and it says, show them the pattern. My people have defiled my house, 
show them the pattern. So I'm sitting here reading that, thinking about that. And the pastor, nobody knew what I was thinking or anything, comes over and says, Bob, I think God's showing you what kind of ministry you're going to have. <laughs> oh, okay. So I'm praying away. Here comes this lady who was an English teacher in Sheldon, Iowa. I'm getting old. I'm remembering things from years and years ago. When before I was a Christian, I hated English. I hated this teacher. I sat in her class and mumbled, stupid, stupid stuff. I was like rebellious teenager. I didn't want to learn English. And, and so I'm sitting here reading Ezekiel in this camp meeting and all these people. Here's this lady that I had hated and disrespected and uh, so on, who had treated me better than I deserved. And here she is at the camp meeting praising God. I don't know what church she went to. And I'm up there praying, and the lady who I'd hated, who had every reason to never talk to me again, came up and said, Bob, the Lord's talking to you about what kind of ministry you're going to have. Same thing the pastor said. Now, this all sounds kind of hokey, but it's part of God's providence. I never forgot that. Show them the pattern. Well, just yesterday, I was thinking about all this, talking to my daughter on the phone, and isn't it true that God uses all things and works together? I don't believe Ezekiel was about me. He was only about Ezekiel. But in his providence, it turns out that that's what I ended up doing with almost all of my life, is showing Christians the pattern, in my case, of the new, what the new covenant in the Bible is about, stuff like this. Does that mean we should take the Bible out of context? No, but it means we don't have a sterile relationship to God. He is using everything to get us to the right place at the right time. Brother. Yes, I didn't hear the first portion. I came into the, this section of it, and uh, so I'm kind of sort of struggling with and need some clarification on how do we really hear from God. What made you feel it important to spend time on this particular subject i mean uh now and and when we and one further thing uh when we say hear from god we're talking about our communication with god okay thanks for asking that was the first portion of this i showed a video clip from a dvd that was being sold called be still and know that i'm god and it was beth moore talking about the tent of meeting using the Old Testament, and she was claiming that she had her own tent of meeting in her kitchen, and God came and spoke to her like he used to speak to Moses. Okay, so some people went and heard her this, and somebody gave me the DVD, and I wanted to dispute her claim that Beth Moore was the new Moses. And if we learned how to be mystics, we could all be the new Moses. So I play part of this, and then I refuted it at that conference. And some others that I know really took on this thing, and we made a big splash to fight mysticism in the church. Beth Moore acts like we don't even exist, and she just keeps on teaching heresy. Okay? And now the worst one, I think, is Sarah Young. We've got to get our categories right. Okay? You know what happened? Because Beth Moore, Sarah Young, then Brian McLaren, and all these other people, effectively rejected the Reformation. Okay? People started going back to Rome. Now they're going back to Ethan or Orthodoxy. Because, like Hank Hanegraaff, rejected the gospel. And the reason they rejected the Reformation, we're going to have Dan talk a little bit about that. He's doing some research on it. Was that if you want to have new words from God beyond scripture and 
everybody under the sun is claiming to get them. Why go to all that? Why not go back to the Pope? Because he's been doing this for 2,000 years, he says. Of course, not really. The Pope has been speaking from the chair, binding words from God for Catholics for centuries. And that's what they started doing. And so when I did this 10 years ago, I started getting emails and phone calls. There was a guy I knew in seminary who called me. And he said, yeah, I heard what you said. I I saw the thing about what you wrote. And in this very article that we referenced, and this guy I knew in seminary said, you're right. I did go back to Rome. And I'm happy to be back with Rome. I do not believe in scripture alone. And I believe that God still speaks. So I went back to Rome. He just confirmed what I said. And then I heard from another one. Oh, yeah, I went back to Rome, too. And I had done this seminar about why evangelicals go back to Rome. Now, this conference that we did and this particular DVD was saying that this is a failure of faith. We don't believe the promises of God. Okay. Now, I don't know if anybody wants to talk about Matthew 24 25 and the marriage. Do, do you want to mention something about that, Harry? To prepare a marriage house, right? You want to go ahead? Yeah, you know, um, just first, I just wanted to make a comment on just uh, something that you had here on page three. It's in the handout, and then I'll, I'll comment on that. It's the Hebrews 11 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. There it is. To me, um, that's what you're really arguing for is the sufficiency of Scripture. And that's what your battle has been, Bob, is to prove that the Scripture alone is sufficient. And here we see that the idea of the conviction of things not seen, that can mean things not just that we see visually, but things that we experience. What the writer of Hebrews is saying there is that faith comes by the revelation that God has given. And anything apart from that is things that we're trying to get apart from what God has revealed, whether it's seen, whether it's felt, whether it's heard, whether whatever it is. And you see this idea in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, it says that in hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he already sees. And this transfers into eschatology. Jesus said that a wicked and adulterous generation seek for a sign. They want to see something. But nothing will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. That's what's been revealed. That's the resurrection. How do you and I know about the resurrection? Did we see it? Did we hear it? Did did we experience it? No, we read about it. We, We have it from the word of God. That's the point. So the word of God is sufficient in all things, not just for today, but for our future as well. And so I just want to commend you, Bob, for just focusing us again on Scripture alone. No, I'm sorry, regarding the... Well, um, just the idea that we don't see him, but we know the bridegroom is going to come. There's going to be a wedding supper. Amen, exactly. And that's one of the analogies that he uses. That's what In I the have. Jewish uh, wedding, what would happen is the son would go prepare a place for the bride in the father's house. And the bride had no idea when he was going to come back. But he would say, I'm going to go to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back. So she was to be ready at all times. That's the point of the parable of the virgins. They're to be ready at all times. Well, while he was away, what he would do is he would send gifts. So think about in Ephesians 4, the son sent us gifts. He ascended on high, and he received, it literally says in in Ephesians, he gave gifts to men. And then it says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets. Well, what did he bestow upon us? The word of God. That's the greatest gift that he could give. Why? Because that's how he reassures his bride while he's away. See, we can't see him yet. And that's what Bob was trying to say. Don't try to see him. That's the urge that all of evangelicals have. I want to see him. I want to touch him. Well, then you're not living by faith. You're living by sight. And you'll be deceived 100% of the time. What I love, Bob, what was revolutionary for me when I heard that message that you gave, the analogy that you gave when you said the Israelites are at Mount Sinai. And they have words that are coming from Moses. 
But all of a sudden, he ascends on high, and as soon as they can't see their mediator, what do they do? They become idolaters, and they build a calf that they can see. That's what evangelicals are doing. They're going back to the golden calf because Scripture isn't sufficient. Yeah, so I, I, was, I used to say that, when I, I still do when I debate people, but they had Moses. They, these people saw the Red Sea part. They saw all the signs in Egypt, the manna, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. They didn't have some sterile, non-spiritual religion. They had a powerful, visible one. And Moses went up on Sinai, and the words were being spoken by God. And they said, oh, we can't bear it. We're going to die. Moses, you speak to God. We'll do whatever he tells you. And God said, yeah, they spoke well. So we're going to do. And so that's what's going on. And what happens? Well, we can't see Moses. So let's get the earrings and the wedding bands. And Whoa, look at that. God showed up. A golden calf. How many of you know that was bad? Very bad. Okay, yes, Peter. Hey, Bob, uh, just to uh, double back toward the uh, discussion on prayer that Paul alluded to a little bit. Our Paul here, not the apostle. But uh, one of the questions uh, that I have, and, and again, you just mentioned that this woman that you saw at church that, you know, she had every right to be angry with you or whatever because you maybe disrespected her in whatever form or fashion. But are you saying that God uses means like this woman providentially to convey what she did toward you about your future ministry? Yeah, he used the providence, but in the end, it was, if what I was doing wasn't valid scripturally, I would have to ignore that. But God just was... Let me, let me explain further. I had a, I've been thinking about this now. I got out our old yearbook yesterday. I was looking at 1974, the year I graduated. I was in the Assemblies of God Bible College with some great teachers. I don't believe in the second blessing. I don't believe you need to speak in tongues to prove you have the Holy Spirit. But that was their belief. But I had great teachers, and they said, Bob, stay in the Bible, learn the Greek, and don't listen to all this stuff out there. Because they had gone through the whole problem with William Branham and this non-Trinitarian and all this garbage, and they had gone to scholarship to escape from it. But I was drawn to the charismatic because it seemed more real and powerful. So I went, I stayed, I graduated 1974, and I went and joined a charismatic commune called Daystar Ministries. And I spent five years there living. Some of you know about that. I met some people I still know there. And I was part of that, living out the inner healing, the deliverance, all that stuff my teachers told me to avoid. And at the end, I realized it wasn't right. So we started Twin City Fellowship in 1980, had a building, and we started having a church. And we finally decided just to teach the Bible because we can't trust our experiences. The people need something reliable. So I started teaching the Bible verse by verse in 1982 or 83. That happened. Then uh, what happened was there was conflicts eventually, some problems rose in the early 90s. And my best friend said, Bob, you need to go to seminary. I don't want to go to seminary. And finally, they sat down and said, you need to go to seminary. This is not going to work out. If you won't go to seminary, that's your choice. But I don't know what's going to happen. We can't think of anything else. Go to seminary. So I called my dad was my best friend my whole adult life until 2001 when he passed away. And he, I said, Dad, I'm 42 years old. They want me to go to seminary. It's going to take me years because I'm a full-time preacher. 
By the time I graduate, I'll be 48. Six years from now. Dad said, six years from now, you'll be 48 if you don't go to seminary. <laughs> Farmers. Farmer logic. So, so I went. What was I going to do? So Pentecostal Bible College, charismatic community, trying to teach the Bible with what education I had. Now I'm in a Baptist seminary. And I happened to get there when they had the best teachers they ever had. Dr. Block and Dr. Schreiner and some of the people's commentaries I read now. But there was a problem that developed there. So I was there, graduated actually later that decade. And then we ended up the ultimate year. It's all providence. Now here's my answer, Peter. Providence includes good and evil. Remember, Joseph said, you meant it for evil, but God intended it for good to bring about this end. So if you look back, as I was doing yesterday, showing Diane our 74-year book and thinking about all that happened, I learned what is good and what's not good from every one of those. And they all drove me to where I am right here, Scripture alone. I can't trust speaking in tongues. I can't trust apostles and prophets. I can't trust the shepherding movement. I can't trust Christian feminism or whatever came around and broke that ministry up in 1980. I can't trust seeker movement. What? I went all the way back to that tent meeting. Show them the pattern is really what God wanted me to do. And that's what, what this is about. Here's the pattern. Yes. So how do we respectfully um, challenge or educate or teach um, someone who believes they're getting a direct uh, answer from God through prayer? Do we bring them to Scripture in these verses that you cited? Yeah, that, the whole point of this was to give that answer. Okay, that I think every Christian should be required as part of their discipleship to study the book of Hebrews. That that is a fantastic answer. God gives us the throne of grace. And the Lord of glory hears us and prays for us. He knows things that I need that I don't know that I need. I needed to go to that seminary so I could do what I'm doing now. I had no way to know that, and I was dead set against it. So who does God send? My friends and my dad. My dad says, what are you going to lose? You're going to get old, I promise you that. No matter what you do, there you go. I'm going to actually kind of piggyback on what you just said, and and I'll I'll raise you one, okay? I'll see you and raise you one. Read the book of Hebrews, like you said. And then I've just discovered this myself, that, you know, the way my mind works, and I think most of us, we can only, we're not omniscient. God is omniscient. We're not. We have to go through God's Word in a linear fashion. We have to go through it, and probably starting with the book of Hebrews or, or you know, any number of other things. John, yeah. So we go through in a linear way, but then we need to go through again and again because as, as time goes on, it becomes comprehensive. We, we understand the full counsel of God only after we've gone through the Bible several times. And then the final thing I would say is that you alluded to it earlier, uh, understanding John 14, verses 1 through 3, the bride of Christ, in, in conjunction with the Hebrew uh, marriage traditions. The kingdom is not here now. We are the bride, and we are waiting for our groom and, and all of this kingdom now stuff and mysticism, all of this could be cured simply by understanding the Bible more fully. Okay? Amen. Yeah, there's, it's just full of it. i got to close on this and I'll pray. Listen, what did Jesus say? If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, 
lesser to greater, how much more will the Father gladly give you? God is going to take care of us because of who he is, and we trust him alone. And I'm not going to lament anymore the fact that I don't have the voice I had then, and I don't have the energy I had then. I'm going to rejoice that in God's providence, he helped us preserve all this. And what I have now, God will use how he sees fit. In that yearbook I looked at yesterday, Dr. E.M. Clark, great godly man, was our president, hardly had any voice. He's, he'd spent his whole life preaching like I have, hardly had any voice. And he used to get up to speak in chapel. We could barely hear him. And he says, I don't know what to do, whether to use what voice I have to preach to you or just to use it to pray. And I thought, preach to us and pray silently. And so God used that man. I'm not any better than anybody else. So I can't yell and fill a big auditorium with just my voice. I can't be Spurgeon. God's in charge. And so yesterday I was thinking, he did all these other things. I'm going to quit lamenting and just take care of the flock the best I can. And God is going to use each one of you. I know he will. I'm not any more important than anybody. So let's thank God that he takes care of us. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your love and kindness and grace and mercy. Thank you that you did go and prepare a place for us for your son. And that your son Jesus promised he's going to come again, bring us to himself. We do long for that marriage supper. And we thank you that you've allowed us to see these wonderful things. And we praise you and give you the glory in Jesus' holy name. Amen.